Summer, 1949. NATO was just signed. World War II ended four years ago. In post-war Vienna, there's a third man. In Oceania, there is only Big Brother. You think maybe two plus two equals four, but that can't be right. You're experiencing double vision. Our guest today is James Simpkin. He's a part-time PhD student explaining labor's ballistic missile defense policy from 1997 to 2010 a strategic relational approach. He's a teacher by profession, and he's also undertaking a blogging, vlogging, and podcast experiment called Primitive Accumulation. So he's here to talk with me about 1984 and the film The Third Man. So I'm very excited to uh, get this sort of perspective on these stories, both from uh, mid-1949. And uh, so thank you for coming on, James. And um, so the, the, the basic you know, concept here, of course, is these are both released three months apart. Um, 1984 comes out June 8th. The Third Man comes out September 1st. They're both from England. Uh, as is, as is James, uh, and and so that the, you have the, these different stories emerging out of this post-war dawn of the Cold War moment. And uh, James James uh, was very eager to talk about 1984, and I was particularly eager to talk about it with him and, and his background because one thing that I think um, bother, bothers me with the sort of legacy of the novel is that it's of course very influential and it has wide ranging uh, applicability, but it has sort of deteriorated into a very broad shorthand for any sort of, uh, you know, government control, uh, propaganda, surveillance, anything like that. It's just like, it, it's 1984, it's Big Brother, it just becomes a shorthand for all of that. And so what I'm interested in is thinking back to the specifics of the novel and how it emerges out of this moment in 1949. And so, James, would you like to introduce some of the, the novel? And yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks, Tim. And I must say, this is a, a great format, pairing the um, two different types of media, the book and the film, to, to pull out what zeitgeist were informing those at that time. And I think that's really important, what you say about this shorthand with not Orwell, because people pull that out, you know, Orwellian, the thought police, etc. all these different phrases, and it's also important to remember that, that Orwell himself was a little bit of a complicated individual on this. So he wasn't completely anti-authoritarian. He wasn't completely anti-thought police, uh, so to speak. For example, there's this infamous uh, list that he wrote um, for, the, for the BBC, I believe, about alleged communist sympathisers. Put that to one side for, for one moment. I, I mean, I think some of the key themes that are informing 1984 and The Third Man, which I'd never watched before, it was great, and uh, that's the first um, film I've seen uh, from that particular director. I'm definitely going to watch more. Um, but one of the main themes coming out of that is Eurasia. Okay, so in 1949, we get the, uh, the Soviet Union uh, test their first atomic bomb, and that has the potential to erase mankind. What we get with 1984 is we get this theme of erasure through Winston Smith. You know, he is going to be an unperson. He is going to be erased. He's going to be shot in the back of the head. At some point, he doesn't know when it's going to happen, and that will be the end of him. He will go down the, the memory hole. Whereas the uh, protagonist in um, The Third Man, Lime, the, the bad guy, um, he 
tries to erase himself you know he tries to disguise his fake his own death and um, in order to escape to the russian side but eventually um, you know martin's catches up with him and he's brought back to life so we see that interesting dichotomy between smith being erased uh, or, or smith trying to live and ultimately being erased balanced with uh line trying to erase himself escape but then being brought back into consciousness so to speak um and also another really key theme ar arising out of that cold war um zeitgeist which again fits in with my um, my thesis a little bit about ballistic missile defense um although that didn't exist then was the in 1949 you get the foundation of nato okay so you get the world coalescing into these two blocks uh, obviously the NATO countries of uh, North America and Western Europe and the Warsaw Pact countries of um, the Soviet Union and, and its satellite states. And absolutely that's being played out right there um, in the third man where you've got Vienna occupied, Vienna with the different zones and again in 1984 what, what have we got here with with um, with NATO and the Warsaw Pact you've got exactly you've got Oceania versus Eurasia okay so we have these very very me coming from it more more of a, oh, uh, a fan of uh, 1984 very much these themes of um oceania versus eurasia and the atomic bomb um so much so much more we can explore here I'll pass it back to you tim oh, i think this is a great intro um so so yeah the third man is is a a film that I'm a big fan of and I was, I was excited to see how well it lined up with this novel and and so, yeah, you know, re-watching it, I was surprised to see how overtly it's in this post-war context, how this this sort of structure of v Vienna, the sort of uh, economic collapse, the um, just even the physical ruins of many buildings creates the scene for this sort of seedy crime world. You know, one of the first things we learn about is that everyone there is running some sort of racket and... And so there, it starts out where um, Holly Martins, who is brought in from America to see his friend Harry Lyme, uh, you know, he, so Holly is, Holly's a writer. He writes uh, what they call cheap novelettes, little like murder mysteries and, and Westerns type things. And so Holly brings him in to suppose, or Harry brings him in to supposedly write for some sort of medical charity uh, he's not really quite sure what the job is, but he's broke, so he brings a man. He goes to Vienna, and and so the the introduction is is that you know everyone's sort of running some sort of scheme, but he doesn't believe that his friend would. Although we later learn actually that uh, Harry was always a bit of a schemer, and that when he was fourteen, he taught Holly the sort of three card Monte, where Monte, where you have three cards and you shuffle them around and. You try to pick which one's like the, the winning card and it's a, it's, a, it's never going to be one of the ones there. And so that's the trick, exactly the trick that he pulls where there, there was supposedly two men. It turns out there was a third man on the scene. And so you, you're, you're supposed to think there's some sort of scheme to have killed Harry Lyme. And it turns out is actually, you know, as you were saying, a scheme to hide his, hide his, you know, or fake his death so he can get away. But there, there's this dynamic going on of um, of this this collapse of sort of morality in, in this context where uh, one of, one of the characters, um, Baron Kurtz, says that oh, even I've done things that would have been unthinkable before the war, and so the the scheme 
that Harry gets up to is there's a shortage of penicillin. And so he thinks, well, I'll pay someone off to steal some and then I'll dilute it and I'll, I'll sell that at a high cost. And that ends up having catastrophic effects. But um, the, basically, the, you have Holly who's primed from his, his sort of literary background, I think, in terms of these murder mysteries and, and so on. And so he thinks that the, the military police major Calloway is trying to frame Harry Lyme. He, he thinks there's, there's some sort of corruption going on. And uh, so he misses the, the sort of trick that, that Lyme is pulling. And there's this uh, idea where his whole ability to stay in Vienna throughout the story, when it turns out he doesn't actually have this job that was, he was supposed to have, um, is that he gets brought in by uh, this guy, uh, Krabben, who is the leader of this sort of propaganda team. And so he, he's like, you know, we've never hosted an American author before. I'd like you to come deliver a lecture soon and we'll put you up in a hotel and, and all of that. And so his, his ability to be here and do his little investigation and stuff and live out the life of one of his sort of chief novel characters is under this pretense that people think he's going to speak in a very high art sense about the modern novel and stuff and and so when he when he gets to the lecture it's like people are asking him about about james joyce and they're asking him about uh the stream of consciousness and all these sort of modernist things and he he's talking about westerns and stuff and and everyone's like leaving and and such but the 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 advertised topic is about the the crisis of faith in the modern novel. And so this is this dynamic where, you know, after, you know, Darwin and, and things like that, people begin to lose faith in this idea of this, this fixed morality that, you know, that there's a God and there's, so there's a strict morality and good and evil and what do you believe in and, and all. And through to the end, actually, the um, Holly, when he eventually meets Harry Lyme and he knows what he did, he's like, do you still believe in God? He's like, oh, of course. But, you know, and, and, and then he, he's, he's looking down on the, the people below and he's like, would you care if one of those dots stopped moving forever? And he's sort of taking morality into his own hands. And, and the, the whole novel... Is, has these sort of inversions and relays it very well through his sort of camera angles and the, the music through uh, what it was called a, um, a zither, apparently. It's a very, very excellent soundtrack. Uh, but but there, there's a great scene I love at the beginning when Holly finds out that Harry Lyme is dead. There's the porter explaining things and he's looking up at him from the stairs and the porter's looking down and he's like, oh, you're too late. Uh, Harry Lyme is already in hell. And he points up to the sky and he's like, or heaven. And he, he gives like a thumbs down, pointing downward. And so part of it is, is this, this joke where his, his language isn't very good, but, but it, it, it's, you know, intentionally reflective of this wider sense of uh, this sort of this moral collapse in, in the post-war. And, and then we, we get that further sort of stylistically through this, this descent into the, the underworld of the, the, uh, the sewers toward the end, that, which is what allows Harry Lyme to sort of navigate outside of the grid of the uh, military police who sort of observe the, the city proper. And um, so yeah, I, I, was, I was really interested in, in those 
sorts of meta dynamics around, uh, you know, he, he's brought in as a, as a writer and he's thinking about one sort of story and he's, he's thrown for, for a loop and he doesn't really understand the, the crisis of fate thing he's brought in to talk about. He doesn't really understand things about the modern novel. And also critically, we can get to later, he, he really sort of doesn't understand that this woman, Anna, who is sort of a, another major sort of driving force in the, the sort of story. Um, but, but yeah, maybe, maybe you could talk more about this, this sort of uh, collapse this economic and moral collapse going on in, in these stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you're talking about the world stood on its head and that's so apparent in, in both these, um, both these uh, medias. Um, you know, we, as you mentioned, we're talking about Vienna bombed about a bit, as um, the character describes it, a third man, Airstrip One, still a ruin. Um, the main difference that you see how morals are approached in these two films is, is that the, the character Martins in uh, The Third Man is a very moral character. Um, he wants to do the right thing, and I'll get into some examples of that, whereas Smith, Winston Smith in 1984, is a completely immoral or amoral character. Um, and there's, there's kind of a... a, a, a bait and switch with that because Smith wants to do something good. He wants to overthrow the party and create freedom, but he's willing to do anything to do to do that. When when he first meets O'Brien um, and him and Julia are asked what they're willing to do, and O'Brien says, Will you throw acid in the face of a child if it will further the, the aims of the you know the, the underground? And and Winston replies, Yes, absolutely. Whereas in the third man, the thing that breaks uh, Martin's back, so to speak, is being taken to the uh, hospital where the children who've been terribly uh, brain damaged by um, this dilution of the of the penicillin are given to meningitis patients. That's what turns him to wanting to dob his friend in, so to speak. So there's that nice inversion there. Martin is one, he's a good person and he wants to stand by his friend, even to the point where he's willing to let him get away literally with murder but then he sees the consequence of what Lang's been up to and changes his mind. Whereas Winston Smith is wanting to uh, do bad means for a good end. Yes, whereas uh, Martins is want, wanting to do good means for a bad end. Uh, so there's that complete inversion. And I think that's also reflected in, in some of the aspects of Anna and Julia. So both Anna and Julia in, 1980, Julia in 1984 and Anna in um, The Third Man are these very kind of matter of fact, they're kind of nihilistic, they've kind of been broken by the situation, they both want to survive, but neither of them, not, not through cruelty, but, but have just accepted death. Death is the way of things. You know, Julia, you know, Julia and, and, and Winston will have their fun for a time, but then they will disappear and that will be it. They, they will die. Um, whereas with Anna, you know, at the point when Martins realised, well, maybe Lyme was murdered, and she says, well, uh, what does it matter whether he's murdered? He's dead, isn't he? You know, this is the outcome of war. Uh, so there is that real inversion of morality there. Yeah, uh, so that was a great point. Uh, and, and so one thing I think is interesting in terms of, you know, really getting at the sort of distinct visions offered by these these two different uh, figures, so on, on so you have George Orwell as the, the author of 1984, and then with Third Man, so you have directed by Carol Reed, and then also uh, it's written by, by Graham Greene, who I think is a sort of major source for 
plotting out this this idea of this post-war Vienna and what's going on there. So, so there's there's a bit like there's two sort of visions driving the film, but you have basically the two works, and and so the 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 vision with the the third man is is as you were saying, Holly Martin's is is this strictly moral character. He wants to do the right thing, and what we see throughout the film is is that basically keeps failing him where he's trying to sort of back his friend and then it turns out that that's he was completely wrong-headed in that and he tries to help uh Anna get, get out of the the city and it turns out that uh you know she, he doesn't understand her motives and what she wants and he's actually being sort of duplicitous and, that, and so he doesn't even really say goodbye to her because he knows that he can't quite sort of pull that off that that she's gonna stick with Harry Lyme even knowing that he brain damaged all those kids. And and then so at the end, you have this inversion where uh, her, uh, Anna earlier ditches her train because she she doesn't want to, you know, sort of be the, the price that that Holly pays to capture uh, Harry Lyme. And she she wants to sort of stick with him. She still loves him. And and at the end, Holly sort of ditches on the idea of catching his plane because he wants to go and walk with, with Anna. And, and so, so, you know, it ends with, she just completely blows past him. And he's sort of just left alone in this vast brawling road in the middle of the cemetery. And, and so, you know, you, know, you have this scene where he's like, you know, amid all, all of the, this death, which is the sort of larger post-war context, you know, he's trying to be this sort of moral guy, but, uh, you know, he's sort of, he, he has his friend and he has the sort of prospective uh, lover that he's after. And he really sort of just does, it doesn't sort of work out for him. Whereas, whereas in 1984, it's an interesting dynamic where, so he is very grossly immoral, which is something that I had forgotten about um, until I was rereading it. But so yes, he, he says he would throw acid in children's faces. And he also says, you know, would you ex- accept doing something that would get like, a bunch of people killed and you know would sort of would you ex- accept things that would basically cause all this sort of mass destruction and chaos and stuff presuming that the long-term gain is this sort of political revolution and he's like yes yes absolutely but um the, it's it's an interesting dynamic where the structure of the party is they maintain power through propping up these very extreme outbursts. So that's the idea in an overt way with the two minutes hate where people just sort of go nuts, you know, reacting to this intense propaganda and that keeps them sort of energized to the cause. And even though in in subversion, you have Julia's whole job is that she creates, um, you know, what, what the proles think is illegal books and you know, it turns out you know it's actually just made within the party, and so and so they're they're putting these out in this sort of machinic way, where it's just you have like four rotating stories, and then they put things together to make new books and pump them out. It's this sort of fake release, and then um, Winston Smith's sort of initial transgression is that he write, gets a diary and he starts writing down original thoughts and he starts writing 
things about how he hates the party. And it turns out that he was sold this diary by a thought police, this sort of inner party force who goes and tries to catch people thinking thoughts against the party. And so he sold the diary by, by one of those disguised as the sort of antique seller, which is, I guess, this is a really perfect role because you find people who want these sort of things that are intentionally not produced anymore. And, and so it's this interesting dynamic where you, you, they, they want to evoke confessions, of course, because the whole idea is to bring out people who aren't completely sold on the propaganda so they, they can correct them. And, and so the, the, you have this transgression, which he thinks is liberating, but is actually sort of just intentionally designed. And so I think that there's maybe as some slight defense, although, you know, it's hard to say like, oh, he's justified in saying he would throw acid in children's faces, but it's, it's very much, I think, designed as Oral imagines it, as you, you get people so riled up in this either or like either you're wholly committed to the party in every sense and you reject even your own senses to believe what they say or you you know are this complete evil the enemy is always absolute evil which is why when the the war enemy switches sides you have to believe you're always at war with that enemy and so and so he's caught up in this this mental framework where he thinks oh you know, either I do do the party or I have to be prepared to do any extent of evil. And so it's, it's, it's um, you know, as a person, it's, it's very sort of unforgivable, but it's an interesting vision for, from Orwell to think how, how they sort of play both sides, basically. Yeah, um, several things coming out of that. I mean, one thing that's so apparent about the tonal difference between 1984 and The Third Man is 1984 is so bleak. You know, just thinking about what you were saying then about Winston writing that convention, he's actually, and it says this in the novel, he knows he's going to die. It's like he, he wants, he's suicidal, basically. He knows that at some point, as he first writes those first letters, that he will be caught and he will be shot. And, ju- and then eventually, you know, when, when they meet up, Julia will be shot. It, it's really bleak. It's, it's a really bleak ending. And I like it for that. I don't always like a happy ending. Whereas The Third Man, you know, it has some humour in it. Um, but just coming back to that ending point, again, it, it made me think, think of some uh, similarities there. At the very end of um, The Third Man, you've got Martins there in, in the, in the um, graveyard. And, the, you know, it seems like it's autumn or winter and, and the trees look pretty bleak and it reminds me of the scene that very wistful scene at the end of 1984 where where smith sat you know bleary-eyed just drinking his time away in the chestnut tree cafe um you know with with the trees looking pretty bleak and just waiting for things to end but it's there is no closure you know winston knows he's going to be shot one day but he's not sure when martins is just left there you know, propped up against the side of the vehicle. What's going to happen to him now? He's still in Vienna. Um, he's got Callaway to help him out. But And that just reminded me of another point that you were making there, Tim, about the attitude towards authority. So 1984 is a very anti-authoritarian book, obviously. And that's why it gets picked up by a lot of different people and the frames, the, the terms get misused a lot by different conspiracy theory groups, you could say. Um, whereas in The Third Man, you know, the authority figures are good. Um, you know, uh, Major Calloway, he's part of the British Army and he's the, the, the hero. Well, he's one of the, he's the authority figure, let's say, and he, he's, he seemed to be a good figure. 
Um, so that's two major differences there, I felt. Right, yes. So, so the there, there's the inversion in the third man where it starts out, he, he thinks he's, he's sort of on this just crusade against the sort of corrupt police. And then it sort of it's it sort of winds its way into to showing how actually the um, even though they're kind of like rough and they like they end up punching Holly in the face at the beginning of the film, uh, they they're ultimately you know good guys sort of serving the common good and and so on, and and so yes yeah, so he's working with them uh, which is you know framed very differently from the idea of like ultimately the party. In 1984 wants to bring you in to work with them. Uh, I, I was interested in th this idea, um, so that they're both caught up in this this rhetoric of the, of the proletariat. And so, in the in the third man, when you when you're in this Ferris wheel scene I was talking about before, they're looking down, and Harry Lyme is sort of presenting his sort of moral defense of what he did. He says, uh, "Nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Why should we?" They talk about the people and the proletariat. I talk about the suckers and the mugs. It's the same thing. And and in 1984, you know, so you have basically these. It's it's set up in this uh, this sort of propaganda and sort of anti-party propaganda explainer. How there is always three a hierarchy of three groups in society. You have the sort of lower class, and then you have the sort of middle, and then upper. And so for the current society, you have the inner party who sort of it has basically all the wealth, but it's disguised under this idea that they don't technically own it as private property. It's shared among the inner party. And then you have the, the outer party, and then you have the, the proles. And the Winston Smith, interestingly enough, you know, he starts out as the sort of prole, and then he sort of ends up working for the party and he has this ascension but then he keeps thinking in some ways he would be more free if he was he was outside of it there's these all these interesting dynamics where uh if you're in the lower class they basically they don't think you're smart enough to really need constant surveillance and things like that whereas if you're in the outer party you basically are, are caught in this point where everything is is constantly monitored everything you do everything you say and to the extent possible they try to figure out everything that you think and in the the upper party they they get certain privileges where suddenly they can turn off the the their televisions that are also cameras and but only for up to maybe 30 minutes you know so even with them if there's a sort of this limit uh, but but Winston and Julia live this temporary sense of freedom where they they get out this rundown room full of bugs and rats and and stuff with all of this old furniture and sort of just live this this carefree life outside of work here. Um, I was wondering if you, if you could talk a bit about about the um, the sort of class dynamics and how that's being sort of envisioned. Well, um, yeah, I'll come to class, uh, but as you, as you were speaking then, uh, Tim, something that was in my mind coalesced and, and I came up with this phrase, 
the indecipherable other. So in, in the third man, you have a lot of scenes whereby there's German speak and one per, one character in particular is never named. But if you look in the notes called the, the German landlady. So Anna's landlady is this woman, an old woman, haggard looking woman, who sort of harangues the authorities when they come to get Anna. And there are other German speakers and you don't know what they're saying, but they're obviously having a, an impact on the plot because they're, they're giving information that you're not party to as, a, as an English speaker. And this made me think of the, the nature of the proles in 1984 because they, they almost do speak another language um, in the fact that they speak like a very broad Cockney accent, it's set in London, um, and they've got their own terms of phrases. But not only does Winston, does Winston find it difficult, do they find, they find it difficult to talk to Winston, he finds it difficult to talk to them because they are not concerned with the, the kind of existential issues that he is uh, concerned. You know, um, the, the, in 1984, the proletariat have been debased to such an extent that, you know, the, the only thing they care about is, as you know, Smith says, you know, gambling and... Um, the horses and uh, that kind of thing and, and drinking um, so there is that distinction between these indecipherable others that sort of get in the way of the protagonist um, and in a sense give give the protagonist away to a certain extent so for example when Martins is not able to understand what the different German speakers are saying and, and that gets him into trouble so um, the figure of, I forget the character's name, but the, the shop owner in 1984, who turns out to be a government agent, he is kind of part of the proletariat, but he's, he's a little bit more lower middle class, shall we say. And, and he is the one that, that entraps Julia and Winston. So the, these people you can't understand have a role in, in, in tripping you up in the, in the end. Yeah, so, so the, the shop owner, Charrington, and, and and so there's actually you know an interesting thing where he has he has that, that that sort of Cockney accent and then when when they go to arrest him he shows up and like his his appearance is more like cleaned up and he's completely dropped the accent he speaks in, in this very formal way all of a sudden and and so it, it's it's all fake whereas with Winston the he thinks at times of like this idea of just going off and living among among the proles, but he, he one of the things that stops him is that he doesn't think he could fake the the, the forms of speech. But uh, the the idea that you brought up is interesting that he's he's also in a completely different mode of thought, much more existential, caught up in in these sort of grander concerns and such. And and so there, there's you know there, there's that depiction of a sense of something being true to the party's concerned, which is that basically once you're brought into the sort of outer party work that introduces the these thoughts about you know the basically the the workings of the party that if you're in if you're in the sort of lower class the sorts of life and work you're caught up in doesn't really involve you in that bigger picture you know there, there's the woman outside of the the shop and, and their little apartment who her whole life is just having children, preparing food, cleaning clothes, and you know, she's like sings through it all, and it's something he sort of admires. But it, but it's this very you know physical, labor-intensive existence that's very different from from Julia is caught up in the fiction department, and Winston goes back and corrects news records 
which go against the sort of current definition of, of reality. And, and so once you're caught up in that sort of, um, you, you know, sort of in- intellectual work, then, then you need to be sort of monitored and caught up in, and they need to enforce your conformity to a sort of party line. And, and so there's this, one of the big, big ideas is the double think where you need to, you know, know something is, is clearly not, doesn't logically play out in some way, but you need to wholeheartedly believe whatever it is the party needs you to believe. And so I, w- I was interested in, in that idea because one of the, the core ideas with your primitive accumulation project is that uh, cognitive dissonance is good actually. And so I was, I was curious your thoughts on on doublethink and how Orwell sort of sets that up. Yeah, so thanks for that, Tim. And I suppose that that really does show how much of an influence 1984 and Orwell has had on me because I, I, I read that when I was about 14 or six, maybe 14 to 16. Um, and it is my favourite book. I know that's sometimes a trad thing to say, but I'm, you know, it is my favourite book. And I've read every, I've read all of his book. I've read a lot of his, most of his political writing. The only thing I haven't got, which I would love to get, is an entire volume of everything that he that he wrote. But um, a lot of that's uh, out of print or cost hundreds of pounds. But again, coming back to the cognitive dissonance, and and this is why Orwell is one of my heroes is because he did have this notion of truth. And that's outlined in 1984. Um, a book that just arrived for me today, which I'm looking forward to read, is this called The Ministry of Truth, um, a biography of George Orwell's 1984, which is about the writing of the book and the things that were going on. But at the beginning, it's got a quote there from, from 1984, and it says, there was truth and there was untruth. And if you clung to the truth, even against the whole world, you are not mad. And Orwell has this another, another line from his, his political writings where he says, the truth is still the truth, even if it's written in the Daily Telegraph. Now, the Daily Telegraph is a, is a conservative newspaper in the, in the UK. And he, he was a, a lifelong socialist, not an authoritarian communist, but a democratic socialist. But the, the point that's getting across is you should always read against yourself. If you are of a particular point of view politically or whether it might be religious or whatever point you are, you should always read the other side. You should always try to engage with strongman arguments, not, not strongman arguments. And in that way, you, you may experience, as, as I do often, and it's, it's painful, but I, I I enjoy it because I feel like I'm getting nearer to the truth. You experience this mental anguish whereby you have this strong belief and then you read strong arguments against it and your whole worldview is, is, can be shattered. But from those fragments, you, you, can, you, you sort of build them up and, and you get a picture of the truth. And I think that's what Smith is trying to do. Um, you know, when he's trying to hold on to what's true, he's trying to save things from the memory hole, so to speak. Um, but if I may, I'd like to riff on that a, l- a little bit more and, and what um, 1984 um, means to me, because I think it very much inoculated, uh, again, I'm, I'm being a bit funny here, but um, against going full commie, so to speak. So, you know, I don't mind putting putting my heart on my sleeve. You know, so I, I consider myself a, sort of a left-wing person, a, a democratic socialist, if, if you want to put that in, in English terms, you know, like support of the Labour Party. But there is something within me which is attracted towards communism, or at least Marxism in a theoretical sense. And I think 1984, did by, by showing so explicitly where totalitarian leads, 
totalitarianism can lead. It, it had a big impact on making me think, you know, you need to read against people who are communists or Marxists or whatever. Um, and, and two ex- real-life experiences chimed in with that a little bit as well. So one was growing up after the end of the Cold War. My dad, who was a plumber, um, he went to Romania with a charity and they were fixing up the orphan. And there was a, a young man who came across, who became friends with my dad and came across um, and lived with us for a little while to learn English. And he often spoke of, you know, the horrors of living under Chowchester. And also, kind of randomly, one of my mum's friends at work, her husband was, he was Hungarian. And he got out of Hungary as a teenager, but he, him and his sister were rounded up during the, the Hungarian uprising of 1956. His sister was actually shot. He was put in a, con- a concentration camp for political dissidents, and he had, he had a tattoo on his arm that's got a serial number. So again, these two, you know, reading 1984 and then coming across these characters, um, the, these individuals, um, helped give me that critical sense politically, helped me stop going down sort of totalitarian mindset. So I think this is why uh, 1984 is so important today in, in teaching us to think for ourselves. Sorry if I've gone off topic there a little bit. Oh, no, not at all. I, I was I was interested in that that personal dynamic for you with the novel where I, I think it has, you know, in terms of these, these competing visions and, and really the this whole idea you, you were saying about taking one one idea and, and putting it up against a competing idea and really like w- grappling with that space, I think is actually maybe part of the the core idea with, with this uh, podcast series is basically, you know, don't just look at 1984, look at the third man, but see what happens when these two visions from the same moment really come together. Uh, but 1984 is this really big picture kind of book in a lot of ways where, especially because in, in the middle, there's a fairly long section that's just this sort of essay explaining how the party works and and its history and, and how these sorts of terms were developed and such. And, you know, that I think comes in part from George Orwell was also a great essayist and and so on. And so he's writing this novel with these characters, uh, but but it also has this sort of like core essay bit in the in the middle that's just that's just laying out this idea about history and the sort of political scene and where things might be heading and and why and you know there's also a a big point in in there about about warfare basically that there's this need for constant warfare and and uh and and but you you're not necessarily competing over anything real you just sort of need this enemy and so on. And, and so this, this, I think, is this sort of vision from the sort of dawn of the Cold War where it's no longer, you know, World War I, World War II, you know, fighting to a specific end. It's just this, this sense that the, the sort of cycles of war need to sort of just go on endlessly now. Uh, but The Third Man, I think it gives this much more ground level sort of view where it's, it's, it's all about, this sort of world where people get caught up in, you know, the sort of struggle to get by in sort of post-war Vienna and so on. And, you know, the different directions they turn where, you know, people turn to various levels of rackets and Harry Lyme and his associates go to one of the sort of most egregious versions. Holly Martins gets a sort of offer to go, go into it with them and, sort of refuses to to go down 
that path. And, and, and Anna is sort of in an interesting periphery to this where she doesn't really go along with it exactly, but she's also doesn't have the same sort of steadfast rejection of, of Harry Lyme. And, and so I was, I was really intrigued, you know, in terms of these two different visions where one is, is about, you know, the sort of grand scheme of everyone is sort of just part of a vast system and needs to get sort of steamrolled into something that can be sort of scientifically understood. And then you detect these changes and you correct these changes and it's all very mechanical. Whereas the third man really maintains this, this much more personal sense where it's, it's about these, these, these sort of nicely sort of realized people with their, their competing moral structures all sort of operating within the same space but but i was i was intrigued to hear about you know your sort of personalization of of 1984 and really grappling with you know being you know something like maybe a character you know caught up in this world and and how do you grapple with these dynamics of of uh you know expected beliefs and 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 how they're framed in these sort of stark oppositions that's maybe not quite the truth and the truth really requires working through these contradictions that the the party in the novel is set up to prevent you from really working toward that sort of nuance. No, I, th- I think that's a really good point you made there, Tim, about especially with the third man, as you say, how it how it brings these themes to life. Because 1984, although it obviously has characters in it, it is it is more structural because it has those passages in it where you know Goldstein's theory of oligarchical collect, which is so cool to me that it's got passages from a book in another book, both of which are fictional books. But um, with with the third man, there there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of sort of the strategy stuff at the beginning, and there's a little bit, as you say, where um, Lime's outlining about the proletariat and um, you know the suckers and etc. like that. Um, but it is, as you say, much more personal in in the third man but i suppose what's great about that is is you know you've got these big general sort of meta narratives going on and these discourse but what the third man does it sort of makes the general particular through the characters so we have the ruins of war we have people wheeling what is this what is this making the individual characters do and that's played out at at a really individual level and i think that's where it goes with uh, when when lime is running through the sewers it reminded me of uh, Smith's descent into room 101. You know, they go way down into the belly of the beast, so to speak, and that's where they get their come up. Right, yeah. I, I actually, so I, f- I first encountered the third man through a course on sort of like studying uh, the sort of like literary reflections of, of infrastructure. And, and so this is a sort of film version of that, but there, there's there's this interesting dynamic where, you know, the, the, the structure of... Um, the sort of underground infrastructure and and how it's built into the, the town square in a sort of semi-obscured way that allowed Harry Lyme to disappear and and how it's sort of revealed in parts through the sort of rubble and such allows for the, these sorts of uh, chases and escapes and disappearances and sort of, you know, the, the sort of magic card trick in a way, um, sort of a very interesting part of that. Um, the w- one last thing that, that I want to talk about, you, you can maybe, you know, bring up a, a topic as well, but you, you had brought up early on the, how these two works are very tonally different. And so the third man has these humorous moments and 
so you know I mentioned the, the soundtrack before as well, but it, but it's it's really so masterful where it's in some ways very fittingly dramatic and and it, it gives this this sort of intense you know feel to the sort of eerie sense of being watched or the, the heightened you know tense to the chase scenes and so on. But it also it has this weirdly sort of upbeat feeling to it as well. And so e- even where the sort of subject matter is quite dark, there there is this undercurrent to it where it's it's a bit of a sort of romp, you know, where running in parallel to these ideas of the sort of cheap novelettes is like it's it's very has a very serious core to it, which I think is caught up in the sort of historical context. But it's also this, you know, it is a mystery and it is this fun little sort of adventure through this landscape. And, and so the, um, with 1984, it's, it's very much, you know, because it's, it's drawing on these sort of essays and because, um, you know, I, th- I think Orwell's vision of this is maybe sort of much higher stakes than, than uh, Reed and Green are thinking with the film. Uh, you know, you have basically this buildup to where uh, he he finds these sorts of moments of joy in music primarily, but in the end, he's sort of he's brought to the point where like he can enjoy it, and it's also this dynamic where they they make it so you know you can't really indulge in physical attraction. Everything is sort of for the party, and and so it's 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 a sort of tragic ending in a way, but from Winston's perspective, it's, it's interestingly like he sees it as a happy ending where he has this, this thought early on about how sort of miserable he is sort of living as a sort of dissident who's like, you know, can't quite maintain the double think of maintaining the party line, even as it's his job. And, you know, thinks that he'd be, better off dead and and you know to the end he's still sort of expecting this idea that he'll be killed but he ends with a, a, a bit of a happy thought where it's like the the propaganda has won him over to where he can finally be happy living under the rule of the party and big brother and and, and so i thought that there's the, um, an interesting thing there and and then with harry lime you have a, a interesting sort of moment of liberation where before he he dies, he's trying to crawl his way out of the sewer. And there's a shot where he just barely slips his fingers up through the grate of the sewer. And you have a sort of light breeze sound and, and you can sort of feel freedom for a moment. And then he is sort of agrees to let his friend kill him, yeah. you know, because he realizes, you know, where at the beginning, Major Calloway says, that uh, you know the the charges against Harry Lime are, are so serious that it, he's he's it's better off that he's dead, and he he basically agrees at the end is that you know he wants to basically he resigns to sort of face the sort of grander you know religious judgment of, of God basically rather than go off with the military police and and it's it's such an interesting uh, contrast to me to to. Winston Smith, who sort of completely resigns to, uh, he's in service of the party. And if they want to come up behind him and shoot him at some point, 
you know that's that's sort of that's just how life is yeah um and, and this is so rich um tim this is so so rich just just as you were talking there uh, you're talking about lime and his release and it may i just jotted down lime is what winston churchill would love to be if what lime was doing was in service of the underground so if if you know when lime does that monologue where he says you see those little dots if they stop moving and you could make 20 grand for each one well, just change that with if they stop moving and you could overthrow the party. Yeah. You know? So, so you, you mean Winston Smith, right? Sorry, Winston Smith. Sorry, who did I say? Winston Churchill. Oh, Winston Churchill. <laughs> well, Winston Smith. Yeah. Um, so, and with that, uh, and again, as you were talking with uh, Lime there and his resignation at the end, um, you know, Winston has a passive acceptance of his fate. There's no chase scene in 1984. Whereas the third man. Um, obviously, uh, Martins is, is trying to look for his friend, but Lyme tries to escape. Winston Smith does not try to escape. There, there is no, you know, gunfights and people chasing people with police cars. Um, I think there's just that tired resignation of, of warfare and what it's done to people in both. Right. Yeah. Um, the the yeah. So so the, in both cases, the there's this destruction. Oh, one one thing also I, I was really interested in is. So the third man is really set in, you know, basically the moment it's filmed in and coming out. Uh, whereas 1984 is, of course, you know, it's set in 1984 or what they believe is 1984. You know, it's sort of impossible to know the exact year. But it's it's noted very early on where, you know, the, the novel is coming out in 1949. And and it's sort of suggested that... Um, that uh, Winston Smith was born in something like like the mid 1940s or so, something like that, right? And so so Orwell is actually thinking a bit ahead and imagining, you know, for those being born now, not not you know what it's like to live in this precise moment, but like for those being born into this moment, you know, what what is the sort of future laid out for them? And and so and so there, that. I think guides th this this grander concern for the the big picture and 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 ha what the sort of inevitable you know flow of, of certain things are. Where, whereas the third man is really caught up in in just the sort of dynamic of you know the sort of reality that you know there's uh, penicillin shortages and people are you know really desperate for money and, and things like that and they're running various rackets and and so on and and, and so you know i, I think this, is, this was a great sort of uh pairing to explore um absolutely and, and um i know you want to keep this pretty tight but i think i think one theme that um would that's also running through 1984 and um the third man is is this issue of sexuality and the the in, in 1984 there's julia and there's the red sash of the junior anti-sex league and, and the way in which sexuality is used to um prime people to 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 repress that and bring that energy out in in hatred towards the the um, the other side whereas in the third man there's this casanova club and you're not quite sure whether it's got this seedy side to it Mar at one point martins goes to a club and i'm not sure it's the casanova club or it's a different place and it's obviously there's like uh, it looks like there's some kind of sex work going on there. Nothing graphic, but it's implied there. But again, that that um, that shows Martin's virtuous side because he's having a drink and he, he can see what's going on, but he chooses to leave and he goes to see Anna. 
whereas in 1984 Winston is, is haunted by this experience that he had with with um, a sex worker um, and it's obviously a very harrowing scene um, so I think that's another important point that that's played within 1984 and um, uh, the third man right yeah it's this the sort of eternal human drive that that always needs to sort of be accounted for in any sort of like social political system and and so you know in 1984 as with everything else orwell imagines what it would be like for a government to sort of completely subject that impulse and and so on whereas in the third man you you have this interesting sort of you know interpersonal moral drama in some ways or or amoral drama sort um and see see, i know i know the scene you're talking about where it's just like it's just the this bar completely full of young women who are all staring him down and and so he you know decides um he decides to sell out his his friend harry lyme but his 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 price for it is that Anna will in turn be sort of free. She's going to be otherwise claimed up by the sort of Russians and she doesn't want to do that. And, um, but, but, but as I sort of brought up early on, you know, there's this, this interesting dynamic where in the end, you know, she just sort of walks right past him and, you know, had earlier sort of taunted him, you know, that he should find himself a woman. And, you know, as he was like, well, so that should be her. And and but she's so committed to Harry Lyme through everything. She says, you know, no matter what, he's still a part of me. And you know, is especially not willing to go with with Holly Martin after he, you know, betrays Harry. Uh, and so yeah, I, th- I think you know, there, there's that important element to it where you know, part of what's driving this behavior is is these sort of these impulses, and and you know, they, they do get very different visions of that in part because I think Orwell sort of preempts some of that and then sort of imagines like, you know, you, you, you have this repression and what does that do? Whereas the third man is, is basically set in this, this heavily, you know, policed area, but it has a certain level of lawlessness where a lot of things can, you know, sort of go, uh, and in 1984 as well, it's, 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 there's technically no laws it's just that certain things will will get you re-educated or killed, uh, and you don't know what they are because they're not on the books. But uh, you know, and and so you also then have to place yourself. Yeah, they they are obviously both romance stories to a certain degree, um, unrequited, perhaps in the in the case of Martin's, who definitely seems to take a shine to Anna, and she rejects him for. You know, dobbing in uh, line, um, but also, you know, in 1984, um, Winston and Julia both declare that they are both willing to betray each other um, at the meeting with O'Brien. You know, they state that we will betray each other, we will stab each other in the back, we will denounce each other. Um, so maybe that's again a little bit more bleak of an attitude than just unrequited love in the case of Third Man. Yeah, I mean, there's so much here. Um, I know you want to keep this pretty tight, uh, Tim. Um, just a couple of things which plot holes, if you like. Um, one thing that didn't quite add up to me was um, the uh, when they sort of fake the death of uh, Lime. Is is the person who is actually run over? Um, is Lime sort of run over and it's kind of faked, or is that the um, I, th- I believe he's called Habin or something like that? The the other guy. 
Um, do they run him over and somehow make it look as though it was lime? But that didn't quite add up because other people might have seen that and known that it wasn't lime, that it was this Habim guy who ended up being buried instead of lime. Right, yeah. So actually, um, I'm not entirely sure uh, my, myself on that, right? So the, the guy that ends up buried in Harry Lime's grave is the guy they bought the penicillin from. So they tie up that loose end. Yeah. And, and so they, they fake Harry Lime's death. There's a, a line from the porter who's not being entirely open. And so that eventually he says, oh, I'll tell you more, come back tonight. And then he's murdered because they, they come after him. Uh, but he says the third man looked like this sort of ordinary man. He could have been anyone. And, and there's, there's this parallel shot to the, the Ferris wheel scene where Holly Martins looks out the window of this, you know, there are a few floors up, and you see a few people kind of walking around through the street. Uh, and, and so I'm not actually sure if that's um, Harry Lime as the sort of everyman, you know, he, he can't quite say that it's him or not. Um, but, but yeah, so that, that's, the, that's the, the dynamic there. Um, you know, that, so, so the, but basically, you know, the, the Harry isn't actually hit and the car is also, it turns out it's Harry's own driver. So I don't know if they like somehow led um, this other guy there. I, my impression is it's, it's all just this faked scene because um, otherwise it wouldn't, I don't know if it would, wouldn't make sense to somehow having- guide this guy to Harry's apartment. That will actually kill. It must. Well, they d- they definitely kill him, but I, I was I actually wasn't clear myself if if they kill him there or if it's just basically they they sort of kill two birds with one stone by faking Harry's death and thereby getting a, a sort of coffin to put the other guy in. Well, um, I feel like we could go a thousand different routes with this. They're so rich, Tim, but um, I know you want to keep this fairly tight, so we can we can wrap up now. If you wanted to, uh, do you have any th- any other major points you wanted to bring up? Um, no, I, um, I, I ha- haven't. Well, I could do, but um, sorry, we might have to cut this a little right. bit. My wife's got to go and pick my son, my kids up from school. So okay. I need- yes, so so we'll, we'll wrap up. You know, I think basically there's there's this interesting dynamic. You know, we laid out a lot of different like you know distinctions and similarities and these sort of visions. Obviously, they're emerging from very similar historical contexts. And, you know, there, there's the dynamic I brought up earlier in The Third Man where it's like, oh, Harry Lyme is in, in hell or he's in heaven. And they're already sort of inherently inverted. And that sort of, you know, double think in a way of really sort of trying to understand what exactly is going on is both this sort of surface level mystery of, you know, who's in the coffin? Well, who died? Was it a murder? What, why did this all happen? Um, but then there's also, you know, the sort of the, I guess, deeper moral uh, mystery of it all, which is, you know, what, what is to be done of, of all of this? Um, and, and, you know, in 1984 has, has a much more, I think in some ways, overt sort of, you know, didactic structure where it's like, this is, you know, the terrifying vision that needs to be avoided. And these are the sort of mental trappings by which they'll try to trap you. And you laid out a, a great sort of personal vision, I think, of, of you know, what that looks like for an a- actual individual 
to read 1984 and really grow from what is sort of offered there. And I would say the overarching theme for me coming out of this is the way in which gigantic international forces like the battle between superpowers, which is evident in 1984 and obviously the third man, impacts on individuals, even if it's influencing the way they think and then the way they behave. You know, uh, in the third man, in the Cold War, you had a lot of grubby things going on, different countries interfering in different countries' businesses, you know, human rights abuses, supposedly in the name of the greater good or winning the Cold War um, by either side. Um, and, and maybe this is what you see with the third man in particular with these compromised individuals who have their who you know have their visions of the good but are willing to make certain sacrifices in order to achieve those that would be my son that was very good thank you for for that thank you for coming on it was a great discussion yeah thank you i, I really 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 enjoyed it um, and i think as i said i think it's a really great um, format and I look forward to to seeing this one uh, listening back to it listening back to your comments I thought they were really great and um, yeah thanks for inviting me and and having me on to talk about my favorite book basically I really appreciate that Tim yep Th thank you for coming on a lot of great insights mm -hmm.